are taking a squad over to Newville on a public relations mission. Boy, you leaving a squad? Some private in the 101st lost three brothers and he's got a ticket home. How come Newville? Yeah, I think he's up there somewhere, part of all those airborne mist drops. It's not gonna be easy finding one particular soldier in the middle of this whole goddamn road. Right, and a needle and a stack of needles. Hello and welcome, welcome and hello, this is Wait You Haven't Seen, and it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically, we talk about a movie that at least one of us hasn't ever seen before. Uh, I'm your host Travis, aka TV's Travis, this is episode number 63, the movie that we watched this week is Saving Private Ryan, and joining me is David Luzader. How you doing, David? I am doing well, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being on. So, you had never seen Saving Private Ryan. Yes, I... uh... Unfortunately, you know, I do a movie podcast. I did two movie podcasts at one point. I pride myself uh, as a movie person, as a cinephile. But there are some movies that, unfortunately, uh, big ones to some people that have slipped past my radar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I know that feeling. Being Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, and that happens. You know, um, there's plenty of that that can go on. Like, I miss... There's certain movies that I miss. Um, you just can't watch them all. There's just no way to. Now, are you are you much of a um, a war movie or World War II era movie fan? I guess I'm not. I think that that might be part of it. Um, that's one thing I actually want to talk about tonight is I uh, that I'm not a huge war movie fan. But I saw a movie uh, a war movie recently that was pretty big. 1917 was on mm-hmm. a lot of people's radars. Went to the theater for that one and just. Uh, as I was watching this movie, just kind of some of that was was triggering off in my head of kind of the the differences in war movies now versus war movies when this was made. Okay, yeah, and then this you know on as as I know. right, and on top of that, you have it uh, the Steven Spielberg aspect of this as well. Um, yes, because I did see this in the theater, um, and part of it was I'm a Steven Spielberg fan. I love his movies, cheesy though they may get at times, and like overly sentimental. There's something about that I really like. So, well, yeah, you know, yeah. he, he makes he makes enjoyable movies. I'm not I'm not going to come on here with any hot takes about like, oh, Steven Spielberg is, a, you know, he's the if you're a normie, you're love Steven. Spielberg. like, no, you know what? Steven Spielberg makes fun movies and he's not as hot as he used to be. But dang it, he still, you know, has some of my favorite films in his oh, yeah. filmography. Absolutely. Um, so this came out in ninety eight. And I remember it coming out because I remember I didn't see it right away in the theater. Um, And it wasn't so much a thing like I didn't want to. It was it opened really big and it was really popular. And so I waited a few weeks, but I kept hearing from family members and friends about like and then reading stories about World War Two vets leaving in the middle of the movie because they couldn't handle it or coming out of it just in tears because of how how much it affected them. So I went into it with this idea of what it was going to be. And it, and honestly, it delivered to me at the time. Like I'm not a world war two vet. Obviously I'm not a vet of any kind, but it's still, it's a powerful movie. Um, so I can absolutely see how, uh, world war two vets would have, would have something like that going on. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, you know, something, and especially in those early scenes where, 
you know, you just that 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 opening thirty minutes of yeah. uh, of the D Day storming is, oh boy, that is something to like. It doesn't feel like they're trying to deliver any specific action sequence to you. We don't have a real, you know, we're we're following Tom Hanks as it's going through it, but it's not like they're like Tom Hanks is your action hero who's doing everything right. It's just you see how they fight for every inch of that beach, and it's yeah. like I can't, I can't imagine being in that situation and, and pray that I never have to be in a situation like it. Yeah. So, so there's a lot written about that particular scene. That's probably the most mm -hmm. known aspect of this movie um, other than, you know, maybe making fun of the title and calling it shaving Ryan's privates or something. Right. But, right. <laughs> but um, they really, so Spielberg kind of made this movie as a love letter to, I guess his father was a world war two vet. And okay. um, he wanted it to be authentic and realistic to the, the feel of being in that situation. That was the thing that got so much praise from vets. And even, um, was it James Doohan, who was Scotty in Star Trek, was a World War II vet. He was at, uh, I don't think it was Omaha, I think he was at Juneau Beach. But he, he praised the movie for how it depicted what was going on there. And what I liked about it, and as I was reading about the movie... You're right. There is no like single point of view. They give you they give you Tom Hanks. They give you kind of an over the shoulder from the German side of things, kind of, but only really one shot of that over and over, mm -hmm. and then just this randomness of all the yeah. stuff that was going on. And what was cool about that, as I was reading, was Spielberg kind of let his cameramen just sort of do whatever they could, whatever they found. So he right. would they would shoot. They shot everything sequentially for that. And they would just move up the beach further and further. But huh. he didn't give them specific directions of like, capture this. It was just, we're going to have all this stuff going on. Capture what you think looks good. And we'll figure it out type of thing. So it gave it kind of an interesting look and feel uh, yeah. that I think was a, you're, you're right. And that it's just, it's just a gut punch right away. Like the movie pulls no punches. Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't, I didn't know about that. Cause that it, I think it comes through in the final product where they just, they, from from a, a directorial standpoint, it's just like, all right, just, you know, let everything begin. Let's start the sequence in its utter chaos as it would have been, you know, how much we can stage war. Mm -hmm. And then let's just see what we capture and put that together. I, that That's really cool. I didn't I didn't know that that was how they filmed it. And I, I think to their credit, as you said, it's it is a a section of the film that as I, you know, I had not seen this movie, there was so much I did not know about this movie, but I had a pretty strong understanding before even going into it like it starts with the the the, the storming of the beaches and that the, that that scene is really well known and and really important for various reasons yeah and and it it sets the tone for what you're getting out of this movie right away because it's it's kind of tough to watch it's it it's yeah. very uh visceral both visually with the with what you see i mean the first shot like it's this tension building and you're seeing all these young kids and all this stuff as they're, they have no idea what to expect. And as soon as that boat, um, drops the gate, like immediately, boom, guy gets shot in the head and it oh, just, yeah. everything goes to hell. And yeah, then you, you add in the, the sound work that they did for this movie was unreal. I mean, so last week, um, I covered heat and I was talking about the sound work in heat because the sound, especially in that underpass shootout is so great with the way it echoes and the way that they, they um, just put a bunch of microphones out and captured all the sound on, on location. 
And mm-hmm. this is another example of how good sound work can be in a movie and how good it is in this movie and how it puts you in that position right away. You got, you know, the, the way the sound was going in and out as the camera was coming in and out of the water. Uh, um, yeah. Just all of that. And it, it makes you uneasy and unsettled. You don't know what's going on or where it's coming from. Like, it's powerful. Yeah, I believe um, I, I didn't do a ton of research on the movie itself um, before this discussion, which is a little bit unlike me. But I did kind of want to just make sure I kept it a little bit pure of like, here's my first reaction to mm-hmm. the the film. Um, but I did, of course, look up like what Academy Awards did this win? This was the year that Shakespeare in Love won, which is, I, I think, a highly uh, contested year in review. Yes. Many people believe this movie should have won. Mm-hmm. Um, but sound was one thing that this swept pretty pretty easily was uh, best sound and best sound editing. Yeah, and deservedly so. It's a, it's phenomenal the way the sound Absolutely. worked in this. Um, and they you know they captured all the all the audio that they did use. Um, they used period accurate stuff for all their foley work. Yeah, there's something uh, uh, like even about that just how how good this movie is at at, at immersing you in everything that they're doing. Um, in what it was at the time and what these soldiers are experiencing. This isn't necessarily sound. I guess it kind of goes along with sound, but just it, it's what popped in my head is the scene where it suddenly cuts to Tom Hanks trying to use an espresso machine yeah. in the, in the little, you know, French town before the big climactic uh, war scene. And just for some reason, them cutting to someone turning valves and all this metal. I was like, wait, where, are, what, what's happening? Yeah. Where are we? Yep. It, it just felt so different all of a sudden. It, it really did. So I haven't seen this movie in a few years, um, but I've seen it a couple of times. And the the opening just always sticks with me, but then I forget parts of it. Like I forget for the image that I always get is the guy that's walking along. He's missing his arm, and then he turns around and goes back, and you yeah. see him pick it up. So they used actual amputees for a lot of those people they had uh i want to say something like a thousand or 1500 um army and navy uh i think they were irish reserves um as extras and a lot of a few of them were amputees so with the exception of one person i think everybody that's missing a limb in this movie was an actual amputee that that they would put in costume and, and use the the lone exception was brian cranston yeah i was i was going to mention <laughs> brian cranston was shown without, uh, without which i forgot he was in this movie so there, that one surprised there's a ton of people in this there's so many people in this movie like some that were hot at the time some that would yet be hot uh that now kind of looking back at it like i'm watching like oh man there's nathan fillion yep who at, at the time you know was nobody but now it's like, oh, man, look at how young Nathan Fillion is in this movie. Yeah, I mean, Tom Hanks was obviously a huge star at this point. Tom yes. Sizemore um, as Sergeant Horvath was pretty was fairly big. And this was – he was in the middle of kind of his drug issues. Um, yeah. Now, one thing I did read, and I thought this was uh, pretty interesting. Spielberg said, look, you can be in the movie, but you're going to get drug tested every day. And if you fail, I am recasting the role and reshooting everything that we did. Even if it was the last day of shooting, he was, he kept threatening him with that throughout the whole thing. So he was clean the whole movie had some problems afterwards, but oh man, Tom Sizemore is one of those guys where it's such a shame what drugs did to his career Yeah, because he's so good 
in so many like he's got a presence about him in this he had it in black hawk down we just had him last week in heat and he's not in that movie for a lot but he's memorable in it um i really like him i just wish he could have kicked the meth habit yeah you know it's it's a hell of a drug yeah and they say that for a real specific reason um it's it's real sad what drugs can really do to some people's career like you know, I, I love Carrie Fisher and all the crazy stories we have about her, but I can't help but feel like, hey, maybe we would have a little more work and a, and a little more, uh, maybe, you know, perhaps she would still be around today if not for what she had um, she had gotten herself into for a large chunk of the, the 70s and it probably close up to her death, let's be honest. Um, I'm not, not that I'm, I'm bad mouthing any of these people who have these addictions. I no, mean, no, no. Seymour Hoffman, it's very difficult to deal with it's just it's tragedy when it's you know when they when they pass and it's like well we can we can kind of point to this one thing through their life that uh that affected them yeah i mean if you look at tom sizemore's career and kind of the trajectory that it was on at this point he had done strange days he had done heat he had done um this movie let's see black hawk down would have been a couple years later and then it sort of fell apart for him and he didn't get as many roles for a while mm-hmm. um yeah so you never know. Uh, one guy that was in this that I thought was going to have a bigger career than he did was Edward Burns, who was Private Ray Raven, I think. Um, oh, the, the guy yes. from Brooklyn. I like yes. Edward Burns. I've seen him in this. He was in a movie, um, came out, I think, oh two or oh three called uh, Confidence, that I really liked. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a one of those Ocean's Eleven type movies. But I like okay. him a lot. For some reason, his career just never really took off the way that I kept thinking it was going to in the early 2000s. Yeah, I was, I was watching this movie a day with my girlfriend, and uh, he came up, and she was like, hey, it's the guy from 27 Dresses. And that was uh, the extent that either of us could name anything he'd done. And I'm looking <laughs> at his filmography right now, and it's like, you know what? I uh, It's not a surprise to anybody who's heard my other shows that I do, I ha- I watched all of Entourage when that was on. He was apparently on four episodes of Entourage. Do not remember him <laughs> at all. The, just He's somebody, you, I mean, you're right. He wasn't very well known before this movie. Uh, and you would have thought with the way that the careers kind of of everybody else in this movie went that wasn't a big name. Yeah. Uh, he would have something. Yeah, because he but did this. He did 15 Minutes, which was um, a couple of years later. That had De Niro in it. Um, that was sort of, it didn't do as well as people were hoping. Confidence was kind of the same way. And then he just sort of fell off. Like it just, I don't know what happened, but um, yeah. he was definitely. He's also, yeah, he's a director as well, but again, nothing of any real note, mm-hmm. it looks like. Yeah, yeah. He was one of like four four actors in this that are directors because Hanks directs a little bit. Burns does. Yeah. Had a young Vin Diesel um, yes. in this. It, what's funny is so many people don't know that Vin Diesel is in this movie. I know. Well, and, he's not in it for very long, but well, but it, it, it's so, a so I, I, yeah, I had known that, and I so I thought going into this, oh, he's going to show up in the D Day scene and maybe get killed, and it's going to be one of those things where, like blinking, you miss it. There's Vin Diesel, but he's in the first forty five minutes. It's a three hour movie, so he's not in you know even a third of it. Right. But he's <laughs> in the first forty five minutes. Yeah, I was and, surprised by that. And you know his his death is an important one. Uh, he's the first mm-hmm. member of the company to die. He dies yeah. in a way that you you almost facepalm because it's like, what are you doing? Right. What like the whole time you're like, what are you doing? Stop doing whatever it is you're doing, and then he gets shot. 
Yeah. And then he starts the through line of his note getting passed from person to person that keeps yeah. happening throughout the movie. Well, um, yeah, because yeah, it goes to Giovanni Ravisi and another uh, another one of those people that you know pretty young in this and went on to have has had quite a career. Uh, Barry yeah. Pepper, another one. Yeah, Barry Pepper. Um, uh, we we mentioned before Nathan Fillion, obviously Matt Damon. Uh, joking, you know, at the at the time was a nobody, but I think like the year before had just written Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, and so his career exploded just as this movie came out. What was funny was he was cast in this because he was a nobody. Yeah. Um Spielberg wanted somebody that that had no real star power. Then Goodwill Hunting comes out and he his career starts to blow up. And he's like, "Okay, well, you're still in the movie, so <laughs> Right. Well, and uh, and also, so just talking about expectations kind of for this film, I thought, "Oh, they're not going to find Matt Damon until the very end." And oh, right. And they find him and there's an hour left in the movie and they're with him. Because, <laughs> again, I didn't I didn't know much about this movie. Uh, so I, I was totally expecting like oh, a little Matt Damon cameo right there at the end. Yeah. And it's not uh, like he I mean, he's in the movie for the last hour. But some like half of that time is that final battle scene. So right. there's a lot going on. But, yeah, he, he does come along about an hour and, and it's like an hour and 46 minutes in. Um, yeah. Adam Goldberg, you know, I recognize him from a lot of stuff as film film buffs we do. He's sort of, he's one of those that is, for your casual movie fan, is like, a, oh, it's that guy. I might have seen him in something else. But he's had mm -hmm. a decent career. Yeah, he's done a lot of TV. He's done yeah. a few movies. I think he uh, he's done a, a, a little bit more on the, like, behind-the-scenes side. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, he's but he's one of those people too that it's like he's he's been around for a while and he's he's working. It's just you're not you're not going to see him. Well, so far you're not going to see him in a Marvel movie. Who knows? I'm not going to Yeah, you never know. Paint this man's career. Um uh, Jeremy Davies was another one. Cor Corporal Upham. So, yes. So my my girlfriend and I are watching Lost right now. Oh and yeah. In season 3 of Lost, uh, he gets introduced as the character of Daniel Faraday, and I hadn't really seen him in in anything that I can remember before lost and I've only really kind of seen him since in the CW shows and a big crossover they did. Uh, but watching, mm, right. watching this, I was like, wait a minute. Hey, that's, uh, that's Daniel fair in the character that I ended up relating to the most. And, uh, he's kind of the audience surrogate a little bit. I a little argue. bit. Yeah. Um, especially for anybody who isn't a vet or a soldier of any kind, like he's definitely yeah. the surrogate for that. Now I, I did see him in the the Arrow uh, crossovers. Um, yeah. I remember him from. Do you remember a movie called? Um, pardon me. Uh, Ravenous, with Guy Pierce. Oh no, I don't think I've seen that one. Okay, so we might have to have you on again for that. Ravenous was a movie came out in the early, um, early two thousands. Late nineties, nineteen ninety nine. I'm looking. Ninety nine. Right okay, um, and it's a it's set during um, Civil War era, but it has to do okay. with cannibalism and Wendigo, and it's just kind of a weird. But Jeremy Davies is in that, and I I went and saw that in the theater. And I remember him from that, uh, and then because of how much I liked that movie, he would pop up in things like, uh, oh, what was the other one I saw him in? Um, well, Lost, and then. Yeah. Uh, he showed up in the Constantine series before playing a different character 
in oh, the funny. Arrowverse crossovers. Yeah. So he's one of those that I remember from from that movie. Um, but I so, love him. He uh, apparently also I didn't even realize this. He was the voice and uh, motion capture for Balder in the latest God of War game. Oh, so I didn't know that. that. Um, yeah. Interestingly, when I watched this movie, he looks like he's about twelve years old. Oh, I mean, yeah, he just looks so so he's... young. He was like twenty eight. Mm-hmm. It's crazy yeah, how I... young. And you look at him now; he looks looks youngish for his age, but not like as drastically young as he looked in this. Like he looked like a private. He's he's fifty now. You would think he's probably late. 30s like yeah. i thought watching him in lost now what i'm doing with my girlfriend i'm like oh he's like late 20s but you know he was like in his 30s when he was doing that true uh, he's got one of those those looks about him he always looks younger than he is but yeah well uh-huh. on, on top of the uh the you know the new up and covers of the time this is a, a movie that also kind of in in the way of 1917 would later do i remember you know people kind of criticize 1917 for having these breaks where it's like now we're gonna have these big name actors in mm-hmm. the middle of this scene. This movie is doing the same thing when you've got Dennis Farina yep. and Ted Danson showing up and Paul Giamatti. I'm like, Hey, yeah, all these guys that I know. And this was like, Ted Danson was sort of in a dry period because he had cheers had been off the air. And I think mm-hmm. what was the other, was it Becker? Was that the sitcom he I, did? Yeah. Yeah. Becker. And I think that was either off the air by this point, or I don't remember, but he wasn't had, like it was kind of a, a low point in his career and this sort of helped reinvigorate because he hadn't done a lot of like serious work prior to this that I remember. Um, yeah. But he, he was, I like when you can have an actor like a Ted Danson who in 1999, you're only going to think of cheers if you're going to the mm-hmm. theater and seeing that for the average person, but he, it doesn't take you out of that scene. Like he just fits. And I was thinking yeah. that with, with um, Paul Giamatti's character too where he was getting to be a Paul Giamatti character, but it, it felt right for the scene. Like, he was being Paul Giamatti. Yeah. And it was perfect it, for that, but it didn't well, it didn't feel out of place. And so much of that is just kind of how Paul Giamatti talks. True. Which is nothing that Paul Giamatti himself can in any way control. <laughs> that's a very good that point. Is, that's, that's just how he speaks. Uh, but there are times, I agree with you, where it fits so much more than with like other movies where it's like, yeah, you know, he's just, he's being Paul Giamatti. He's a little bit snarky and you know, Paul Giamatti. But you, you do that. You throw him in as like, he's this, um, cause he was what a captain or a sergeant, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. and he's just like this put upon sergeant. Like we've been stuck here for, I don't know how long. And you know, he's complaining about his knees and his ankles and all that. Like it works. Um, yeah. Dennis Farina, you mentioned, um, he's another one that put in the wrong spot can, can take you out of a movie or a show. But yeah. he's great in this. And I think it's the way that they're showing up, right? It's mm-hmm. like they're showing up as these flash in the pan. Tom Hanks is going to have one conversation with them. Yes. And then boom, like on to the next guy. If it was, if they had spent much more time, um, as much as I enjoyed seeing Brian Cranston in this movie, you know, we don't spend a lot of time with the like upper echelon of military command. Right. And if we had, you know, it, it I think that would have dragged the movie down. It would have been like, oh, okay, so now we have this guy in here because he's this well-known actor. And, you know, it's it's kind of like if we had seen Brian Cranston today in this movie, it would kind of you'd kind of have a moment of being like, oh, hey, it's Brian Cranston. Yeah, and this was early-ish in his career, like obviously well before Breaking Bad, but I think this was even before Malcolm in the Middle. 
So yeah, I believe so. I believe, yeah, back in the middle, it was early two thousands in yeah. my mind, as far as I can remember. Um, but you're right. Like using, and that's a sign of a, a good director, right? That's Spielberg being an accomplished director, knowing. I, I think knowing, okay, I can put these people in this movie, but let's not overdo it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll give you some Paul Giamatti, but you get a couple of scenes with him, and we move on. You get a little Ted Danson, you get that cameo without it feeling forced, and give them just enough, and then you move on, and you really focus on you know Hanks, and then you get Matt Damon in there, and. And it works. Um, I recognized a couple of other people too. Max Martini, who was Corporal Henderson. Um, if you ever saw Pacific Rim, you would recognize him. Although I didn't realize that he's not Australian. Um, oh yeah. Oh wow. I did not. Okay. <laughs> yes. Because I'm looking him up now. I did not realize he's not Australian either. So that that's a credit to him. Um, yeah. Who was, who was the other one? Um, Brian Cranston was one. Oh, uh, the 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 advisor that's telling um, the general. So the general was Harvey Presnell, who I love um, mostly because I was a huge fan of the show The Pretender, and he was in that quite a bit. But the other um, colonel, the the white haired one that's telling him, "Hey, no, don't do this," is Dale Die. Dale yes. Die was the technical advisor for this movie as well. He's a retired. Uh, he's, yeah, he's a yeah. retired. Um, Marine Corps and uh, did a yeah. lot of he's been in a ton of military movies uh, but I like him and I've seen him in other things with obviously larger roles but it was it's nice to it's nice when you can put your technical advisors or somebody like that and give them something in the movie yeah he's one of those kind of Arlie Ermy types who mm -hmm. has this hat who has that background and kind of comes on to help you with it and then it's like hey you know what you're so charismatic we can throw you in front of the screen. Yep. Uh, and the only other cast member I wanted to mention is Harrison Young, who was um, James Ryan as an old man in the bookend. Oh, yeah. And I, br I only bring him up because we covered um, Bubba Hotep back last year on this oh, show. Gosh. And he's in that. He's Elvis's roommate. In okay. That. Wow. So, And it was one of those when I saw Bubba Hotep, I couldn't for the life of me, remember where I'd seen that actor, but he looked so familiar. And then it was when I realized, no, he was old man, James Ryan. That's so, funny. And I always like to find those connections to stuff we've covered before, especially when oh. they're weird, weird ones like that. Oh no, totally doing a, especially when you have a, a podcast that has any sort of longevity like this for talking about movies. It's fun when you can start being like, Hey, remember that weird little indie thing we watched two years ago? Yeah. That this weird, that weird there. movie that had Elvis and JFK fighting a mummy. Right. Well, yeah, Bobo Hotep is impossible to explain to anybody, but... <laughs> it's true. It's very true. Um, but, yeah, just, I mean, amazing casting in this. And Hanks is great, as always. Like, Yeah. And you, I bought him as a captain because yeah. he he has the, enough presence to where people... You, you believe that people are going to listen to him. Yeah. And they do they do the great thing that, uh, that, that really kind of elevated his character, which is, let's address who Tom Hanks is which is like now, you know, late 90s, you know, 80s, he was, kind, he was a hot commodity. He was in all kind of the big comedies, but still kind of like a little bit of a, like a young guy, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I have a hard time saying Tom Hanks is super attractive, but I guess he like probably was a bit in the 80s. Not, not that he's not, but it's like he's kind of entering that dad phase for me, you know? Yeah where he's at like but now like in the late 90s early 2000s it's like he's really establishing himself as this actor 
ain't a little bit of like a little bit of that America's dad persona a, a slight bit. You know, he's transitioning out of these really hot roles into these more very serious. So when you're like, okay, well he's you know he's he started playing a lot of stuff like like the cop. Mm-hmm. leading into like the 90s and then by the time you get to like this time when they're like he's a school teacher it's like hey you know what that actually fits him really well yeah you you we all had a, a teacher that looked or was kind of like tom hanks and that revelation of that character paints so much about him and what he's doing and it's it's really kind of a tragic reveal um, yeah. because this movie is a little bit about like the tragedies of war right so it's like when you realize like hey a school teacher is having to make these horrible calls and as carrying 95 deaths with him. I know it's, yeah. that reveal when he, his line and I captured it. Um, but his line about, you know, every, every person that I kill, I feel further away from home and talking about just wanting to get back to his wife and like all of that. You, as the movie goes on, you, you find out more and more about him in his personality and it's just more and more tragic because he is, he is that kind of America's dad. And you're right. You totally buy that. He's a school teacher back home, but he also has that enough presence to where the men in his command are going to listen to him and respect him in part because probably of that like teacher mentality. He, he knows how to deal with people. Um, and then, you know, of course he's got uh, his Sergeant Tom Sizemore there to be his muscle, which never hurts. Yeah, well, yeah, because there's that great scene when, uh, when, and I can't remember the character's name. Now we were just talking about it a minute ago. The actor we couldn't believe hasn't uh, Ribbon. Yeah, the the character of Ribbon when when Ribbon is getting ready to storm off and Sizemore's pointing a gun at him. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's the scene where the whole time I buy it, I'm like Sizemore's gonna shoot this guy. <laughs> like, I know he's just straight up gonna gonna shoot him. Uh, and then Tom Hanks diffuses the whole scene. And it doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel cheap. It's just like, yeah, okay, this man is their captain. Yeah, and he uses the mystery of who he is to his advantage, right? Because mm-hmm. a few scenes earlier, they had he had mentioned that he knew about the pool. Yeah. To uh, to up him, and then yeah. what's he do? He turns around. And he uses that to defuse the situation. Like, hey, 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 what's the pool up to now? And everybody yeah. stops, and it's just yeah. like that's brilliant. It's so good. And this was right in, like, the 90s for Tom Hanks. I mean, he had done, uh, what was it, A League of Their Own and Sleepless in Seattle early on. So he was still doing the romantic comedies. And then all of a sudden he does Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, and Apollo 13 in consecutive years. That's 93, 94, and 95 before directing uh, That Thing You Do and also being in it and then doing this movie. So it's like... Yeah. That's a that's a hell of a stretch for anybody, which um, again is and you know the voice of Woody in '95. Yep. It's just it's all teeing him up to to be to like go out of that like young hotshot from Bachelor Party <laughs> or to, volunteers, to, right? Yeah. Uh, to being this uh, you know a person you can buy as a as a teacher, but also as an army captain, and uh, and he's also you get the feeling that through the whole thing the reason he hasn't. Uh, told them anything he's keeping up that mystery is that he needs to feel disconnected from all of this right because of of what it can turn you into and for him to yeah to like to not reveal who like he has he has that conversation with matt damon um before the climactic fight 
where he mentions, you know, you have to, you have to, con you have to contextualize your memories in order to see everything. And he, he mentions, you know, sitting in his hammock and his wife uh, priming the roses. And uh, when Matt Damon asks to hear more about it, he's like, no, that's, that's just for me. Yeah. Man. <laughs> it, it, he has to, he has to be separate from it in order for him to be able to go back home. Yeah. Well, I mean, or has to be a place that he doesn't really exist in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he has to, I think, do some of that so that he can carry the weight of those 95 yes. people with him. You know, those 95 Absolutely. men that he lost and all the, you know, who knows how many people he, from the uh, German side that he killed. Like, yeah, that, I mean, yeah, that I can't even, I can't even wrap my head around that. Like, it's just crazy. Yeah, I, when I when I was watching this movie near the beginning of it, when they have the scene where they the higher ups are deciding, you know, we need to send someone out to go get this, you know, this young man because he's lost three brothers and this this woman has lost three sons. I mean, to make sure she gets her fourth son, you know, I was kind of feeling towards the beginning there, and this is kind of like the difference in war movies that I was mentioning earlier. Mm -hmm. To me, it was like, well, this is feeling a little bit propaganda. Like, yeah. it's feeling a little bit like the military, you know, we fight wars for the right reasons and we're going to do things for the right reasons. But as this movie went on, because 1917 is very like, you know, war, war sucks. And uh, the people in command are trying to do the thing to win the war, not the right thing morally, mm -hmm. most often. Uh, so for this movie, when it started out like that, I'm like, OK, it's going to be a little bit like rah, rah. You right. know, we're doing the right thing. But as it goes on, it's like this movie doesn't doesn't hide from how terrible the things happening around them are, but also that these are all cogs in a machine that is much, much bigger than them. And there's a there's a little bit of rah rah we're doing the right thing in parts of it, because you know, that's it's Spielberg all at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh but I, I think it still does a good enough job of of making you really feel what these people went through and had to deal with. And, you know, they start getting angry at the idea of private Ryan. Yeah. As oh, definitely. And I think what works to its advantage is the fact that like you had mentioned earlier, we see some of the higher ups and then we don't see them again. Yes. After that initial scene, we never see anything, but in the, in the actual war zone for the rest of the movie until it flashes back forward. And what's nice about that is now the story is about these people on the ground. And so you get everything from their perspective. So you get the Ed Burns character, Private Raven, who initially is like, what are we doing? What's what, you know, tell me the math on this to, I hate this guy, Ryan. And by the end of it, like he still, I don't think likes him, but at least he understands. He has a better understanding of what they were doing and why they were doing it. Right. They that for these people who are detached from war, it is all about this symbolism. Mm -hmm. And even if he, you know, doesn't agree with it, it's like, well, he's like, well, this is what I'm, I'm a part of. And, you know, we can try to get this kid home and try to do, try to do something good for someone <laughs> because right now what we're doing is just, is killing a lot of people and becoming very disheartened. Um, and, you know, there's that great conversation between Tom Hanks and, and Lee Sizemore, but where they decide what they're going to do because yeah. they have an opportunity to just walk away and be like, well, he didn't want to come with us. Oh, well, what do you, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, that, that moment for me was one that I, uh, 
I hadn't necessarily forgotten about, but it wasn't as strong in my memory. So watching it again this time, it was like, oh, that's that's a great moment between these two. Because those are the two that have known each other the longest. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be able to have that kind of a conversation. You know, Tom mm-hmm. Sizemore's character can say a lot more to Captain uh, the Captain than anybody else can. And just to have that conversation and be like, look, you know, part of me just says, leave him here, let's go. And the other part of me is like, maybe getting him out of here is the one good thing we can do in this whole yeah. crappy thing. So I love yeah. that. And, and, and I really liked that that we're given the little bit of time with Matt Damon's character because it, you have him being like, I don't deserve to go home more than any of these guys. Right. You know, it, it, it is, uh, it is a, a character that is aware of the situation. And I just really appreciate his response to it. Cause if, if they found him and he was like, Oh, thank God I'm going home. It's like, well, this, you know, this little wild, you know, sniveling brat sort right. of thing. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's this feeling you have with Upham throughout the whole movie where it's like you kind of get frustrated that he's not doing more. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like, no, dude, I get it. I would also be cowering right where you're cowering and hoping that nobody kills me like that. That's yeah. the correct thing to do. No, he because that wasn't what he was there for at all. Like mm-hmm. he says right away, sir, I've, I haven't held a weapon since basic training, you know. I, mm. I translate and I draw maps. That's all I do. And now they're throwing him out here in this. And you're right. He's cowering. He, he freezes. He can't do anything. He knows that there's a struggle going on up, to, up those stairs. And he can't do anything yeah. oh, to stop God. it. And that whole, oh, man, that, that That's... scene is rough. Yeah. When, when his friend is dying and he is too terrified to do anything. And then at the end, when, <laughs> sorry, um, <laughs> Then uh, at the end, when he shoots the 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 soldier that he had earlier worked so hard to protect, yeah, was was to me one of the most shocking moments in the entire movie. It didn't, it wasn't cathartic. It didn't feel good, no, at all. But it's like I also got it. I understood why he did it. Yeah, yeah, because you know he he put up so much of a fight to save the they they credit him as Steamboat Willie in the credits, the German soldier. Um, and he put up, he did so much work to get him to where they didn't kill him. He's like, no, this isn't the right thing to do, you know, blah, blah, blah. That guy leaves, and then who does he see at the end but that dude, who happens to be the one that shoots Tom Hanks' character. Um, and, yeah, just that moment of he's yelling at the, the soldiers, and that guy's like, wait, I know this one, you know, up him, and he just, he shoots him. Like, it's not cathartic, but you do understand it at the yeah. same time but it's rough yeah just well and yeah and that is that is a, the whole idea that war doesn't leave anybody innocent right like it nope. it, it makes everybody into uh i mean i, I guess killers i you know i don't want to say that there's probably people who went through war and never killed anybody and, and maybe just did communications but people who were really you know in the thick of it dealing with it like no one came out of there smelling like roses no you it changes you. what you had to do to survive yeah yeah Absolutely. Um, and and that's just an interesting thing to go through with that character, especially given how he was viewed by them at the beginning. Nobody mm-hmm. liked him. They slowly came to like him. He, you know, He's talking about, oh, I want to write a book about the Brotherhood of Soldiers, and they're all laughing at him for that. And by the end of the movie, you know, and this, I think, takes place over like a week. But right. a week in, in that situation is a lot longer. Um, but, yeah, by the end of it, they're all like they're getting along and laughing. 
Yeah, and, and there's that 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 part when they're standing around the the muse the uh, record player, and he's yeah. telling them what the lyrics are, and they're all just talking and, and kind of you know opening up about some some of their own stuff, and yeah, they're they're bonding, like you said. Yeah, that and then that that whole section is really great where the you get the group on bonding, and then you get Matt Damon, and apparently the story he told um, in the movie is ad libbed. Oh wow! Of the whole thing with the ugly girl falling out of the you know fell out of the ugly tree face first and all that. I guess that's a that was an ad lib. Um, and I'm trying to find because they talk about it. I wrote it down or I put it somewhere. Uh, Matt Damon ad libbed the story he tells towards the end of the film about spying on his brother. Um, and as described in a some book um, by Peter Bart, I guess maybe it's about the movie. The speech was rambling and not particularly funny or interesting, but the crew decided that's why it worked. Um, it was true oh, yeah. of this like unformed kid, and so Spielberg liked it enough to keep it. And it works yeah. because it gives you a lot about his character in that one little thing without it being like exposition heavy. No, yeah, he he's telling he's telling a story that is only going to be really funny to him and his brothers, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, and and he starts off and he's you know he talks like this this girl who hit the ugly tree like every branch of the ugly tree on the way down and for me listening to that I'm like oh that's not very polite but <laughs> you know like like that those are the kind of things that in the private with your brothers you know you would say these kind of things mm-hmm. and you you know you would share these kind of moments and you you know the, he's the only one it like really hit me when he pauses it's like he's the only one that's ever going to remember that. Yeah, because that that girl was you know knocked out. She's never going to talk about it. The brothers are all dead, and he's the only one who's ever going to carry that memory. And like that dawns on him too, as yeah. he's talking about it. Well, I I really like it because the beginning of that speech he talks about he can't even picture his brothers' faces. Like he can't mm-hmm. see them, and just the the range of emotions that he goes through in telling that story is. It's a credit to Matt Damon as an actor, it, yeah. To to do that, and I've always liked Matt Damon. So, oh yeah, I think people get a, get a little harsh on Matt Damon at times, but I, I I'm a big I'm a fan of the Matt Damon. Yeah, I mean, we talked about him a few weeks ago. We did Dogma, and I oh, love nice. him in that. Like that's a great movie, and he's he's really good in it. He's really good in a lot. He's a lot better. He really than... is. I th- I think he became a little bit of a meme because of the Team America World Police. Thing. Yeah, that's true. Um, but as an actor, it's great. Yeah. Um, so Spielberg is on record that saying, um, even if this film had been NC 17 rated, he wasn't going to cut anything. And I kind of get that, like, because reading some of the other trivia, there were, was it, I think it was India was not going to release the film. They weren't going to let it be released unless he cut it. And he said, no, I'm not going to. So they didn't, it didn't open in India right away. And then, Something to do. Somebody in the um, like Indian film industry or the government or whatever saw it and was like, "No, no, we can do this." So, <laughs> but he refused to cut the movie for anybody, which is good for him. Yeah, I mean, I only, mean, only Spielberg can do that, right? Yeah, yeah, especially Spielberg at this point because he had won Oscars. He had, you know, this was right in his like kind of the period of time where he was kind of at his most powerful. So he could get away with it, but yeah, I mean, credit to him for that. 
Um, yeah, because there's not a lot. There's, I mean, there's a lot of very horrific things you see on screen that happen in battle. Uh, you know, there's a, a point where Tom Hanks keeps leaning over to talk to this radio operator, oh, and man. at one point he pulls him over, and the guy's face is gone. Yeah, and it's horrifying, but it's never. It's not played for shock. No, no, and then that's why it works. I think because it is one of the more. It is violent, but it's it's the violence of war, which is very different from, you know, say a horror movie or a slasher movie that's violent, um, or even some action movies, the, the type of violence it is, is different, but it's no less, uh, jarring or affecting. Um, but you're right. It's never played, like it's never played gratuitously. It's never, it's never played for anything other than what it was. Um, but man, it's rough to, rough to watch if you're not prepared for it or if you have any kind of a weak constitution, like it can be a little tough to watch this movie in parts, but it sort of reminds me a little bit of, um, did you ever see Schindler's list? No, I also (laughs) haven't seen that. I know that's another black spot on my record, but that's another one that was unapologetic in the types of violence that it would show. Um, it's not nearly as violent as this, but like, I remember, we watched it in my ninth grade history class. Um, and part of the reason we watched it was our teacher, um, I think it was ninth grade, but she wanted to, um, she wanted to watch it because of how true to life it was, but she had to send home permission slips because of how violent it was. There was also nudity in it. So she had to get that passed, but, um, it was the same type of thing where it just, it didn't pull punches and this movie doesn't pull punches. You know, you see uh, there's that shot where the first guy goes up with the sticky bomb and the fuse goes off before he can set it. And you just see just the body go everywhere. Like, that's the kind of stuff that's really rough. And that was where some other countries would rate this as like NC-17 because because of the violence um, that's, you know, just part of war. So, Yeah, no, that that part was uh, surprising. Again, surprising but not played for shock. No, nope, not at all. Oh, and uh, music by John Williams, which is always a win oh, in my book. Yeah, of course. So yeah, John Williams is great. I, again, I guess kind of like Spielberg where it's like, you can kind of, you can riff on him now and you know, there's, it's easy to joke about the person who's sitting on the throne, but again, the, there's a reason why they are the position they're in. Yeah. They're great. I mean, John Williams has written some of the most iconic musical movie scores, you know, out there. Jurassic Park, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, like stuff that you can say. I can say Indiana Jones and you can hear that music in your head. Um, oh, yeah. There's a reason John Williams is is who he is. And Spielberg is the same way. And they work together a lot. So that helps. Yeah. No, yeah. And I and I don't you know, I don't want to go down this this tangent here, but it's like. I never wanted there to be a movie based on Ready Player One, but if anybody was going to direct it, like it had to be Spielberg. Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But back to this delightful romp that was uh, <laughs> uh, uh, three hours of comedy. Yeah. So oddly normal one in the chat mentioned Spielberg has a way of showing violence without glorifying it. And I think that's exactly mm-hmm. it. He's not glorifying the violence of war, but he's going to show you all of it. So. Oh, uh, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, again, it goes back to what we're saying. We're like, there are there are moments in this movie that's like that is horrific, that is horrible, but it is never like 
it never then has like Tom Hanks shooting shooting a guy's arm off and us being like, yeah, exactly. You know, like like I mentioned when uh, when Upham shot the guy in cold blood at the end, it was not cathartic. It didn't feel good that he did that. Like nobody, nobody even shooting German. Like you, you know, you're like we we want these guys to win because we're following them, but at the same time, like I feel terrible. They have to do these horrible acts of violence. Yeah, yeah. I think the closest yeah. thing you get to like a yeah moment is when. When Hanks is shooting his um, 1911 at the tank, where it's just like a, he knows it's over and he's just doing it anyway, and then the airstrike comes through. So that one shot yes. and then the tank blows up, like that gives you a yeah moment because you're not yeah. expecting it. Yeah. Yeah. When they, when they, when they shoot, you know, when, when the, when the tanks, and I don't have to watch the people in the, in the tanks get horribly hurt, it's like, yeah, take out that big machine that was going to kill my guys. But it's like when the, when the tank hatch opens and the one guy's crawling out oh, bleeding ooh. from his mouth, it's like, well, yeah, that's not great. Yeah. That and the very next thing good. you see is them throw three grenades into that and then close the hatch. Like, yeah. But then the M 20 rolls up and starts blowing them all to pieces. Right. And it's just one thing after another. It's a powerful movie. Um, it is. So that Omaha it, beach scene cost $11 million to shoot. I, I'm, not even surprised if i'm surprised by anything it's the fact that it didn't cost more well the the <laughs> whole know? budget for the movie was 70 million so one seventh of it went into just like that i mean you know it's 30 minutes of the movie so i guess that's a good way of spending it but still yeah well it's 30 minutes of the movie and it was 25 of the 59 days of shooting yeah i was gonna say it had to be a <laughs> lot of the shooting so oh, in like boy. an hour so a full a full hour of this movie is that opening battle and the final battle mm-hmm. Those are both about 25 minutes long. So almost a full third of the movie is just those two battles, and then you sandwich in. And what's interesting about that is you've got basically battle and then kind of almost a road movie. <laughs> right. And then a well, battle. It, so it, it, the, it, Yeah. But it didn't... A couple of years later, Michael Bay tried to do a similar thing with a war movie and a romance movie and mash them together, and you got the three-hour Pearl Harbor that's not nearly as memorable as this but the, well, I think it's the not diff- for the right reasons I, right i mean the there's differences for a number of reasons but i think maybe where this works where that one kind of failed is the down moments are building up the characters on screen in these really realistic ways mm-hmm. versus pearl harbor which is trying to like build up a romance yeah which takes a lot of legwork and it's kind of hard to do in the middle of the, uh, a war movie. You know, watching this, I, I made a comment uh, to my girlfriend just as an observation of like, well, there's no women in this movie and there's not a lot of, there's not really any minorities. Contextually, that makes sense with the story that they're telling. Yeah. You know, it, it's like 1917. There's, I think, one woman and absolutely no minorities in that movie. And it's, it, it's you know, a thing that maybe some people are going to get mad about because they like yelling in echo chambers, but contextually with a story they want to tell makes total sense. So when you have downtime in these kind of films, it's like, it's, it's got to build up these characters. We, they don't spend a ton of time talking about home. Cause if they did, that would feel almost like we get it. Okay. You wish you were back home. Yeah. Even when, even when some of them do talk about home, they're joking about it. They're laughing about it. Yeah. They're remembering what they want to remember about home. Yeah. And yeah. not dwelling on the fact that they're it, not there because they know right. they can't my, be. 
Right. Minus the Giovanni Ribisi scene where he's talking about like that time that he pretended to be asleep when all his mom wanted to do was talk about her day and about his day and he's regretting it. And they all get really quiet about that because like you can't, it's, it's like surgeons in a hospital. Yeah. Uh, you know, they have to, there has to be an air of levity because there is so much death around you and so much that can go wrong where it's like, if we're not doing what we can to smile, like we're not going to live through tomorrow. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Um, so yeah, so a seventh of the, and then this was the highest grossing movie of 98. And it was the last time until I think American Sniper where an R rated movie, um, was the highest grossing film of the year. Cause this made huh. 217 million in the U S and about 480 million worldwide, which that number yeah. surprised me because usually a movie like this, which is so America focused, those don't tend to do as well worldwide. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, but I guess that that speaks to the universality of what they were doing. Yeah, what they and were, you know, they were I'm telling. sure Spielberg helps that some because he just like yeah. his name carries a lot of weight. You know, you throw right. you, you, he works on a project, it gets a lot more exposure and a lot more people that are going to go see it just because it's Steven Spielberg. Even some of his later stuff that hasn't been as good. Right. Oh, I mean, absolutely. There's there's movies that I. That, that would totally pass under my radar. I would not even care about if Steven Spielberg's name wasn't attached. And then that makes me go a little bit like, well, I kind of want to see the BFG. Yeah. You know, if anybody else had done BFG, we wouldn't even be talking about it. Nobody would be mentioning it. But, you know, Spielberg did BFG. Well, you know, maybe I'll maybe I'll check it out. Yeah, that's true. Not, not to say that. Yeah. Not to say that Spielberg is perfect, but, it, it, you know, he even even in bad Spielberg movies, it, you still get something to enjoy minus hook, but that's something for another, that, that's something for a completely different podcast I'm working on. Oh, you and I can argue about that sometime then. Cause oh, I, I oh, don't, I, I don't dislike hook at all. Uh, I, okay. I enjoy it. We'll we'll meet in the battlefield one day. I think good. that movie only perpetuates today because of nostalgia and for no other reason, but not, not, not what we're here to discuss. Well, and Robin Williams. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. No, it's not what we're here to discuss, though. But, um, yeah, this would have been, let's see, Saving Private Ryan was right after Amistad and before AI was the next thing that he did. Because that's Uh, when he went through his AI, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can. Um, It's amazing how he can do, he'll do something like War of the Worlds, and right before that is The Terminal. Like this huge movie and this tiny little thing. Like he's... I mean, range as a director, you definitely, he doesn't have a specific, you can say there's the Spielberg style, Mm -hmm. but it's more of like a feel that you get from his movies because he has so much difference in what he makes. I mean, this is the guy who did Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same year. Right, exactly. He, yeah, he he just kind of has that universality to him. Yeah, he makes, I mean, he makes movies that people want to see. And he does. You know, I, I like him. I like his movies. So that's why, you know, I, I, well, and I'm again, talking about movies that maybe I wouldn't care too much about depending on who's attached to him. West side story coming out eventually, who knows at this point, (laughs) but I'm, you tell me Steven Spielberg is directing a musical. I'm like, can Steven Spielberg direct a musical? I sure want to find out. I do too. I'm not going to lie. I want to see, especially a, a musical that, like, I know West Side Story enough to know that it's going to be very different 
to yeah. make a modern version of that. So. Yeah. Oh, and, and and to go back to what you're saying, kind of directors whose name carry weight, it's like uh, it's like Christopher Nolan right now, right? Like mm-hmm. Tenant is coming out. A new trailer for Tenant just came out at the time of this recording. If anyone else was putting Tenant out, you would have a hardcore fan base that's like, yeah, you know, it looks super interesting. I want to check it out. But the general public would be like, what is this? But yeah. the fact that it's Christopher Nolan has everybody being like, okay. Yeah, you're willing to take a chance about? on it. Yeah. Given that the trailer is just nuts. Like, I still right, have no crazy. no idea what to think about that movie at all because I don't know anything about it. And I've seen two trailers for it. Yeah, but the fact that it is, uh, it's Christopher Nolan, you're like, well, he probably knows what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm willing to take the chance. Um, exactly. Right. Well, you know, I'm really glad that you watched this. Now, where of the Spielberg films that you have seen, because you mentioned that you hadn't seen Schindler's List, but where would you put this in kind of your Spielberg list, I guess? Oh, man, that is tough. Um, Well, boy, that is real hard because it's, it's almost like for Spielberg movies, you kind of have to put them in separate categories because he kind of bridges so many genres. But That's fair. for for me, I mean, it's it's high on the list. I should say that. I don't know if I can rank it in any sort of numerical place. Mm-hmm. Um, it probably sits around "Catch Me If You Can." Okay. Catch me if you catch me if you can might be a little bit higher for me because of rewatchability. I'm not going to rush out to watch this movie again anytime soon. But I'm really glad that I finally watched it. Yeah, um, I can't believe it took me this long to watch it. <laughs> Yeah, this isn't uh, one you throw in to watch on like a, you know, I feel like watching a movie tonight and throw in Saving Private Ryan. Because one, right. it's almost three hours long. And exactly. two, it's not an easy watch. Yeah, it's it's something I need a little bit more time to digest with it. But coming off of it, I was just like, that was so good. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that it's it's going to be high up there. And um, I now I understand why everybody says that it was robbed for Best Picture. Yeah, because it absolutely was. I can't believe Shakespeare in love beat it. Yeah, and this came out the same year as The Thin Red Line, which is another World War II movie, a very yeah. different World War II movie, because that was Terrence Malick, and that was like a very slow burn. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this was like this was pretty well robbed by Shakespeare in Love. I, and that's taking nothing away from the people involved in making Shakespeare oh, in Love, but. No. And, and I have a soft spot for that movie, but I've totally recognized that it, you know, it, it got propped up by uh, people who I don't want to name at the time and, and yes. who got it to win that award where, you know, this was very clearly the better movie. Mm-hmm. And for me, I put this in my my upper tier of Spielberg movies. I like a lot of his movies, but I put this up there with. You know, my favorites of his are the Indiana Jones movies and Jurassic Park. Um, but as far as like his uh, best movies, I put this up there with things like Schindler's List, where it's such good filmmaking and it's something that's important, I think, for people to see, to understand kind of just where we've come as as people over the years. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Munich is another it, it- one of his that I really like. If you haven't seen that, that's worth seeing. Yeah. It, it is a movie that points to no matter what Spielberg does now, that kind of makes us roll our eyes and be like, well, he's, you know, not at the top of his game anymore. You're always going to be like, but he's the guy that made saving private Ryan. Exactly. Yeah. You can't take that away from him. 
he he's the, no. he made Schindler's List. Like, I for you you I you owe it to yourself to see that at some time. I will. But be prepared because it's not. It's another one that it's not easy to watch. That's a rough movie, but it's really really good. Yeah. Well, all I know. <laughs> from Schindler's List is, uh, and, and I, and the only reason I'm laughing about it is because for some, for me, who someone who has not seen Schindler's List, the top cultural touchstone for me for that movie is Seinfeld. Mm. When, uh, when Jerry went to go see it and made out during Schindler's List because his parents <laughs> were visiting and that was the only privacy him and his girlfriend could get. That's right. So oh, man. it'll be interesting for me to have that shift yeah. in my, in my personal history. <laughs> That's great. Uh, what do we get? Um, catch me if you can. Some people are saying uh, in the chat they really like. Um, yeah, I, it's it's interesting though how he can do stuff like Munich or this, and then also do War of the Worlds. And and, right. and you know, for what you say, what you want about like that movie or Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but you you said it earlier, and I echo this. Even a bad Spielberg movie has some good parts to it. Oh yeah, you know. Oh, a hundred percent. For for all the nuking the fridge and the monkeys with pompadours and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, there's still some good moments in that movie. I don't hate everything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and I'll and I'll bring up to uh, something oddly normal one mentioned in the chat, which is because this movie got made, then Band of Brothers got made. Yeah, uh, which is another thing that that that's him and Tom Hanks. You know, that's another thing that like we can look at Spielberg's legacy and look at look at what he was able to make that is so important to us as a culture. Yep. And he's also responsible or partially responsible for producing Animaniacs. So yes, I, it's true. He will forever be uh, high on my list for that alone. He could have not, not done hardly anything else. And I'd still love him for that. Classic. It really is. Um, well, David, I'm really glad that you came on this week. This was a ton of fun. Um, you mentioned you've done a, you've done movie podcasts in the past. Are you still working on any right now or what are you working on? Yeah. So, uh, the, the movie go around podcast, um, is coming out pretty regularly. I am a co-host on that. Um, but I have a new show that is from the time of this recording, very close to being released. Um, it is, the show that I uh, am launching from the uh, the, the sec- second season of America's Next Top Podcaster. Um, it is called Hit Me One More Time. It is a movie that I think kind of has shares some DNA with this podcast, which it's about nostalgia and it's about the things that we loved as kids. And the idea is to now look at them through the lens of our adult selves and ask the question, is this really good or did I just love it because I was a kid? Um, So that I wish I could give a solid date right now as to when that's releasing. But early June, I can I can say uh, within the next month, that show will be out. And I would I would really appreciate anybody listening to uh, to give that show a listen. Oh, definitely. Anybody that uh, is listening to this show should listen to that because that's that's perfect. I love the concept of it too. Because... Yeah, and you'll be on there soon. I, I'm I'm working on getting people scheduled. So yeah, and that's something there. that I you know I do with this show a lot is I'll watch something that maybe I've seen quite a bit. Like we did Hackers. I love Hackers. Mm-hmm. I know my love of Hackers has a lot to do with nostalgia more than how good the film is. Exactly. And I can I can appreciate that. I still will put it in and watch it. So 
Yeah, that's that's great. I'm 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 looking forward to that. Um, and you mentioned America's Next Top Podcaster. We were both on that season. Yes. Yeah, um, and I, I credit my win to having Travis as a teammate. So. Uh, I don't know about that, but <laughs> but um, take it, take the compliment. All right, I'll take the win. Um, but yeah, so cool. I'm looking forward to that. Um, so this show, and I did not plan at all on doing a movie like Saving Private Ryan on Memorial Day weekend. In the the I realized that as I was watching <laughs> it, I was like, oh wait. But it just happened to fall that way. Um, I record the show and stream it live on twitch twitch.tv forward slash tv's travis on sunday nights um we're doing that right now and then the show will come out in podcast form on wednesdays so um would love to have you here live if you can uh, in the chat room with kit london with oddly normal one with phelan um some of our regulars that are here we had Grubus for life here earlier um and uh it's a lot of fun i love having people in the chat room um next week I am actually Groovis for Life is going to be my guest next week. I'm going to watch for the first time Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Oh. Somehow I didn't see that, and I love Edgar Wright. But oh, it man. came out in 2010, and that was kind of in a period of time where I wasn't getting to a lot of movies. So it sort of slipped under my radar, and then I never got around to it. So I'm fixing that problem now. Oh, gosh. I love that movie so much. I'm, I've, I'm holding off the millions <laughs> of thoughts that immediately pop in my head. Yeah, save uh, it for a week, and then we can talk about it. Yeah, all right. Sounds good. Um, but yeah, so thank you, David, again for being on. Um, we'll have to do again for uh, – I'll bring you on for Ravenous so I can show oh, you something very, good. very different from this. All right. I look forward to it. That'll be violence for violence's sake because it's a movie about fun. cannibals. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> um, but yeah, so join us next week for Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Um, and I like to go out every week by saying uh, get out and enjoy your movies – but also, uh, especially right now with all the weird stuff that's going on in the world, be excellent to each other. This has been Wait You Haven't Seen. That song reminds me of? Reminds me of Mrs. Rachel Trubowitz and what she said to me the day I left for basic. What, don't touch me? Can you imagine a world immune to all forms of cancer? Ladies and gentlemen, the time has come for our fourth annual live stream for the cure. And this year, we need your help more than ever. Please join us May 27th through May 31st for 48 hours of live content from guests and podcasts around the world. We'll be aiming for our most ambitious goal to date as we try to raise $10,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. Please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com for more information on this year's event and how you can be a part of it. Together, we can make a difference. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> <laughs>